The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, so he will lift his head high. Well, I wonder if your heart sang with joy when you heard Peter reading that psalm. If you thought, yes, that's the psalm for me. I suspect not. It's not an easy psalm to understand or relate to. It feels a bit remote, if not in places slightly repulsive. It does not speak our language, it does not address us, it doesn't easily engage us. We feel that it's not about us. It doesn't even tell us what to do. Why might we feel this way? Well, let's look briefly at each verse and see why it seems so remote from us. Of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, it's not clear who's talking or what they're saying. We don't like the idea of enemies. Making enemies into a footstool seems a slightly odd thing to do, whatever it means. And Western democracy is fundamentally optimistic about human nature, which leaves us bewildered when the Bible talks about evil people doing evil things. Verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Well, in the West, we don't like the idea of someone ruling with absolute power. We have a constitutional monarch here in Australia, and she lives a long way away. And we live elected leaders, have elected leaders, and we keep them in Canberra. <laughs> your troops will be willing, verse 3, on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Well, now we're hearing about battles and troops. How can this be a good thing? Make peace, not war, should be our motto. Verse 4 doesn't help us. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, who needs a priest? And who on earth is Melchizedek? Not a popular name nowadays. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He'll crush kings on the day of his wrath. Crushing kings? Wrath? He'll judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Heaping up the dead? That sounds unsanitary for a start. But I think you might rather like verse 7. He will drink from a brook along the way and he'll lift his head high. I, I like a cool drink on a hot day, don't you? So verse 7 seems our kind of verse, even if verses one to six seem a bit remote. 
Well, we may feel that this psalm should be ignored, that it doesn't deserve our attention. It doesn't feel like our psalm. But should we be ruled by our feelings? I love watching advertisements for cars. And have you noticed how often those advertisements appeal to our feelings? If you drive this car, you'll feel free. You'll feel as if you're the only car on the road, as if there's no other traffic, if you can do anything. And this car will open up a world of happiness. Don't trust those feelings. And indeed, one car advertisement begins by talking about why we look for reasons for things, things to understand, but then says, no, in choosing this car, you just kind of go with your heart. It's such a wonderful car. It doesn't tell you anything about the car. It just says, follow your heart. Not the best way to choose a car, I think. Well, coming to terms with things we don't automatically like is part of human maturity. It's necessary to form any kind of community. It's essential to continue a friendship, to maintain a marriage, to raising children and family life. And Coming to terms with things we don't like is also part of life in a church. I seem to remember my parents saying, don't just pick at your food, eat what is on the plate. And we have to do the same with life and with the Bible. So you see, judging things by our feelings, feeling that this is not a very attractive psalm, is not the best way to read the Bible, the inspired word of God. For the Bible as a whole is God's diet for us. It's the food that God has provided. As Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament in Mark 4.4, you shall not live by bread alone, listen to this, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not just the words that come from the mouth of God you like or find easy to understand, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are positively shaped by the bits of the Bible we like. We are negatively shaped by the bits of the Bible we don't like and ignore. The Bible we read shapes us for good. The bits of the Bible we leave out also shape us, but not for good. Well, we may not feel attracted to Psalm 110. It's not a popular psalm, I think. But it is, as a matter of fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament and the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So if you took a, uh, if you ask New Testament writers, what is your favorite bit of the Old Testament? The answer would be Psalm 110. And that suggests that we 
should take this psalm seriously and overcome our feelings and look at it with a little more care. So let's grit our teeth and see what we find on the plate of food God has given us tonight. We'll go through the psalm again and I hope to show you uh, a little more of what it means and why it's so important. Verse 1 of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here King David in the Old Testament gives us an oracle or a saying of God that he has heard. It's a saying of God addressed not to David himself, but to David's Lord. And David overhears what God is saying to David's Lord. And because David overhears what God is saying to David's Lord, we too can overhear it. The Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, listen to Jesus' comments on this verse in Mark chapter 12. Jesus asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, whoever David's Lord is, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus asks, David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Jesus here makes three points. David's words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. There is someone greater than David who is David's Lord. And that person will be seated at God's right hand until his enemies are subdued. And that person, David's Lord, is Jesus himself. A descendant of David, of course, but David's Lord. In the useful phrase, he is great David's greater son. So this psalm is about Jesus. And when Peter quotes this psalm in Acts chapter 2, and shows how it applies to Jesus Christ, he calls David a prophet, because in these words in Psalm 2, King David prophesied about the coming of Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand. That is the place of greatest honor and power in the universe until I put your enemies under your feet. So God is saying to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse two, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Whose mighty scepter from Zion? The answer is the Lord Jesus mighty scepter from Zion, Zion is a name for Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Well, what a remarkable insight into our world today. God rules it, and he rules it through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the tumult of our world is caused by Christ's enemies. The fight between Christ and his enemies is the big battle, the great war, and here is the promised victory. For as the psalm makes it clear, our world is a curious mixture of the rule of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the presence of his enemies. So it's like uh, the step towards the final perfection of all things. We're not yet there. Christ is ruling, but his enemies are still present. He is ruling in the presence, rule, rule in the presence of your enemies. And Christ will rule until all his enemies are under his feet. These enemies, as Paul explains in Ephesians 6, are not flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms who will be defeated by Christ. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. The book of Revelation describes these enemies of Christ as promoting idolatry, that is, the worship of other gods, and persecuting Christians, and as pursuing and promising power and wealth to those who serve them. Friends, this is a frightening analysis of our world, a frightening description of our world, and a great warning about our world. But you might think, I can't imagine that Christ would have enemies. Well, just think of his life on earth. He was surrounded by enemies all through his life, from his birth, and finally they killed him. Paul picks up this theme of the enemies of Christ and of his victory in Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are frightened of powers in this world, please don't be, for Christ is stronger. He will rule in the midst of his enemies, waiting until God puts his enemies under his feet. Verse 3. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. In Revelation 19, we read of the, Lord, the Lamb's army, that is Christ's army. And I suppose the theme of being Christ's soldiers is a bit out of fashion now. 
though the Salvation Army is still going strong. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armour of God. He tells every believer to put on the whole armour of God for our daily lives. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, with our feet shod with readiness of the gospel of peace. In the words of John Howard, a former Prime Minister of Australia, we should be alert but not alarmed. So we are in the midst of this cosmic battle between Christ and his enemies. That is the reality of our world today, as it has been since the day Christ died and rose again. Verse 4, here is another uh, oracle or word of God that David has overheard and has passed on to us. The Lord, that is God, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this son of God, this great ruler, this Jesus Christ, who's seated at God's right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, is also a priest. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, if you don't know about Melchizedek, uh, he he doesn't have a great sort of uh, feature in the Bible. He appears in Genesis chapter 14. And then if you want to understand his significance, it's explained in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Let me read from that letter and it will help you to understand the story of Melchizedek and also his significance. Melchizedek was king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, and priest of Most High God. He met Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what the word Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And because he's king of Salem, he's also king of peace. Hebrew says, So Christ became a priest with an oath when God said to him, and here is Hebrews quoting Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews comments, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So Jesus, our priest, prays for us. And as a matter of fact, our prayers are just tagged on to Jesus' prayers. He is the great intercessor. But again from Hebrews, unlike other high priests, he did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed himself for their sins once for all. Or again, since that, uh, uh, and by his one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So this eternal priest, eternal, like Melchizedek, offered himself on earth as a sacrifice for sins and always lives to pray for us. 
Now, in Jesus' day, there was an order of priests. Uh, Jesus didn't belong to that order. He was of the tribe of David, not of the tribe of Levi. He was a priest from outside, like Melchizedek. But he's a great priest, a priest of the Most High God. And he's our priest because we are his followers. So this eternal priest offered himself on earth as a sacrifice for sins and always lives to pray for us. Then the last verses of the psalm, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his wrath. He'll judge the nations heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He'll drink from a brook along the way and so he'll lift his head high. In this vivid language, David speaks of the final victory of God and of Christ over all the powers of evil. Well, you may be thinking, but there's not a lot of forgiveness and mercy in this psalm, is there? Well, that just tells us that it's very important not to read one psalm or one part of the Bible and think it says everything. No one part of the Bible contains all the truth we need to know. And as a matter of fact, it's really helpful to read Psalm 110 in the light of Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 is also a psalm about Jesus. Uh, Another decree about Jesus God says, you are my son, today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. And Psalm 2 is also about the rule of God and the rule of Christ. But it contains a gracious invitation to God's enemies to repent. Psalm 2, verses 10 to the end. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Here it is, but blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So these kings are busy running away from God and from the Messiah, from his Lord. And then they hear the words of this psalm, And they can find no refuge from God, but if they turn to God, they can find refuge in God. There's no safety if they're running away from God, no escape. Their only safety lies in turning and submitting to God and receiving his forgiveness and his pardon. Well, Paul picks up that theme in Romans chapter 5. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will will be saved through his life? God is a judging God, but a reconciling God, a forgiving God. And he reconciled us, his enemies, to himself by the death of his son. Well, I wonder if you like overhearing other people's conversations. I do, I love it. 
It's often more interesting than the conversation I'm happening, having at the time. I remember overhearing many years ago a lady in, the, in a bus saying, I just heard these words, so I shot him. <laughs> and ever since then I've been wondering, was it a dream or was it a sick cat or was it her husband or is it a case, a case which still remains unsolved, uh, what they call a cold case, I shot him. But here we're overhearing what God the Father says to God the Son. And this psalm is based on two direct quotations of what King David heard God say about the Lord Jesus 100 years before his incarnation. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's focus on those two quotations. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Friends, these are words of God about Jesus. They come from the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. They are God's gift to us today. God's food for us today. They remind us that Jesus is God's glorious and victorious son. They remind us that Jesus sits at God's right hand, the very center of power, authority, glory and holiness in the universe, the place of greatest honor. They remind us that Jesus will defeat his enemies who continue to resist him and attack him. And so we need not fear his enemies who are also our enemies. These two quotations of God the Father addressing God the Son remind us that he is an eternal priest who offered himself on earth as a sacrifice for our sins and ever lives to pray for us, to watch over us, to bring us to salvation, to care for us and tend us. They tell us that Jesus is both king and priest, ruling and saving, defeating his enemies and rescuing his people. They remind us that there is no refuge from God, only refuge in God. There is no refuge from Christ, only refuge in Christ. And this message is encapsulated in two really powerful phrases from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about Jesus as the lamb who's been slain. And the book of Revelation talks about the wrath of the lamb and talks about the kings of the earth hiding in holes in the ground to escape the wrath of the lamb. But it also talks about the blood of the lamb, which brings freedom and forgiveness and acceptance with God. There is no escape from the wrath of the lamb except through the blood of the lamb. 
There's no escape from the wrath of Christ except through the blood of Christ. You need the Lord Jesus, the King and the Priest God has provided. Your family needs the Lord Jesus, the King and Priest God has provided. Your friends need the Lord Jesus, the King and the Priest God has provided. Australia needs the Lord Jesus, the King and the Priest God has provided. Our whole world needs the Lord Jesus, the King and the Priest God has provided. Everyone in the world needs the Lord Jesus, the King and the Priest God has provided. Let us pray. God our Father we thank you that in your kindness through your servant David we have overheard your words about your son the Lord Jesus Christ we thank you for his glorious kingship and rule and we thank you for his eternal priesthood his sacrifice for us on the cross and his eternal praying for us, his prayer for us. Please help us to trust the Lord Jesus, appointed by our great God as King and Priest, and help us to tell others about the Lord Jesus, their King and their Priest. Amen.